Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, Phil Anides, and alongside me is my co-host, as always, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Phil. Really excited to talk about Gina Carano. Always a good day to talk about Gina. She's a pioneer of women's MMA, and Chris Cyborg is too, so this is going to be a great show. Reason that you would want to talk about Gina, I'm sure, other than her fight skills and how important she was. It's not. Her, it's not her dimples, Phil. Okay. All right. No, Just it's making not. sure. <laughs> well, it's good. It's good to be back, uh, listeners. We we took a little bit of a break. Uh, I've been on a uh, a long term job search, and and just there's a huge, long, boring story behind that, and. So I felt like we needed, after starting last July in, in uh, 2020, decided that we we're going to take a break for the first time. So we were off. And then uh, we had, before we took the break, I'd recorded the interview with with Pat Militich that we ran um, this uh, this last week. And so we are, but Josh and I are back behind the microphones and we are ready to go and excited about the, the time that we're in Strike Force. And we're going to kick that off with Carano versus Cyborg. So for our new, new listeners, Inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And on today's episode, we are covering Carano versus Cyborg, which featured the first ever major MMA event headlined by a women's fight. And this bout between these two ladies had been in the works for months and was being looked at as a real test to see if women could carry the weight when it came to drawing fans and viewers while at the same time delivering the action inside the cage. And uh, also, some other big fights on this card. Babalu Sobral would defend his Strike Force light heavyweight title against Gegard Musassi. Gilbert Melendez would put his interim lightweight title on the line against the first fighter to defeat him, Mitsuhiro Ishida. And Fabricio Verdun would make his Strike Force debut. So there's lots to get to on this show. Uh, before we get to that, we're going to get to uh, some other things, but one of those would be the fallout from Lawler versus Shields, which, is, which was the last Strike Force event. That we covered on that one, we saw Tyron Woodley make his strike force debut, and he looked to be someone to, to keep an eye on. He made a big impression there. On the other side of the coin, Kevin the Monster Randleman, former UFC heavyweight champion, had fallen to Mike Whitehead in a less than action packed affair, and so that kind of kind of killed things a little bit for the Monster right off the bat. And then speaking of spoiled debuts, Mike Kyle put Rafael Fajal Cavalcante's lights out, ending the Brazilian's initial hopes for a title shot. In addition, Joe Riggs and Nick Diaz both got big wins separately, obviously, in their fights, while Brett Rogers knocked out former UFC heavyweight champion Andre Arlovsky in under 30 seconds, which was a huge, huge win for Rogers. And then in the main event, Jake Shields submitted Robbie Lawler in a quick but entertaining main event, submitting himself as a threat at 185 pounds. All right, let's get back to Carano Cyborg. Before the event was confirmed, Vanderlake Silva gave an interview to MMA Insider and said some some very interesting things that I wanted to share. He said, quote, it's amazing. I trained with her in Brazil. She's incredible, like a man. The last training camp I see, she trained with a man. She's dangerous. Sometimes when you train with a woman, you just play. But with her, every time you need to train because she's tough, end quote. And then later in the interview, he said, quote, the girls make history because it's the first big match for women, the first main event for women. I'm thinking Gina and, and Gina and Cyborg opened the market for the girls, end quote. And he ended up being very astute in that in that thought process. Uh, it was also revealed around this time that Randy, the natural couture, would be training Gina for this fight. And then lastly, uh, Aaron Tuffill, who had been scheduled for a fight on this card, which had fallen through, she would be the backup in case Carano or Cyborg wasn't able to compete because of, you know, weight cut or medical issues or anything like that. 
So it was officially announced in June that Chris Cyborg and Gina Carano would headline this August 15th event and that it would be broadcasted on Showtime. And a very interesting note, I didn't realize up to this point, but apparently as part of Strike Force's deal with Showtime, the cable channel had the basically the, the right to refusal on all Strike Force matchups. They had to approve any Strike Force matchup. So that was uh, that was that was kind of interesting to read that. But for the rest of the card, it was rumored at one point that Nick Diaz and Joe Riggs were going to rematch at Carano versus Cyborg, and that it would be for the newly created Strike Force welterweight title, which would have been a rematch, if, if you remember. And we discussed this with Riggs on a previous episode of Inside the Hexagon, but the two had gone uh, gone toe to toe at UFC 57, with Riggs getting the decision in a, a big time bout. Afterwards, with both fighters busted up, they they brawled at the hospital, uh, and uh, that was that was quite the melee. And again, Diesel goes into all kinds of details on uh, the episode of Inside the Hexagon that we we had with him. Uh, however, this fight, the official fight between the two, would not happen as Riggs would suffer an adverse reaction to a prescription uh, medication, and he would have to pull out, unfortunately. I would have loved to have seen that rematch on this card. So Diaz f- fighting on the card would end up following through as well, unfortunately, as Diaz would not get licensed due to not showing up for a drug test. According to an MMA Weekly article at the time, Cesar Gracie, Diaz's manager, said that his fighter had, quote, an informal agreement with former CSAC executive officer Armando Garcia that precluded random drug testing. Josh, how crazy is that? He had a like a under the table on the side deal to where he didn't wasn't going to be subjected to random drug testing. Can you imagine how crazy the media would go today if a fighter had some sort of handshake deal on the side? Hey. Don't randomly <laughs> you're not going to like the results. I wonder if this was a legitimate informal agreement or if this was just Nick Diaz saying this. Yeah, <laughs> because I, if, I, so, I mean, I guess I could see a wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, we're just going to leave you off the drug testing list. Yeah. <laughs> but it is it is pretty outrageous that 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 happened. You know, um, yeah. I mean, I think I want to know what the prescription drug too was that, uh, caused rigs because it didn't, it didn't uh, mention it specifically, uh, but you if you remember, he'd had a, a car accident earlier, I think uh, it was the previous year and he'd had like a, some busted bones in his back and had hand issues and all kind he thought he broke his hands and ended up, uh, like cracking a bone and, and just in his last fight. So yeah, he's pretty beat up a lot of the time. So I'm sure it was some sort of pain medication of, of some kind, but but yeah, I mean, honestly, Diaz could have, you know, been doing other stuff and, and knowing that he's not going to get randomly tested, <laughs> right. you know, I mean, it's, but you know, of course he was smoking too much weed to pass any drug tests. So, uh, especially in a random one. So he was off the card and we'll have more on that in just a minute. I don't think anyone's going to ever accuse Nick Diaz of taking steroids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of things you can say about Nick Diaz, but being a, a roid head, I, know, I just don't think that's going to ever be one of them. <laughs> um, but another matchup that was supposed to happen included Alistair Overeem versus Fabricio Verdun for the Strike Force heavyweight title, and that would have been a rematch as Verdun had submitted the Dutchman with a Kimura in Pride previously. I would have loved to have seen that as well. Unfortunately, Overeem's hand injury, which he had sustained in a barroom brawl involving his brother Valentin, had not recovered enough yet, and the champ had to pull out yet again. So uh, the, the Strike Force heavyweight title was still on ice, unfortunately. Verdun would actually be pulled from the card and then added back on, and he, he would now be facing Mike. Kyle in a, a still intriguing um, you know matchup but but not exactly on the level of Verdun over him I would have much rather have seen that 
Gilbert Melendez was, was finally supposed to get his rematch for the Strike Force lightweight title with Josh Thompson, and uh, you know basically unite his interim title with with the Punk's uh, you know standard belt as well. Unfortunately, Thompson would once again have to pull out due to ongoing injuries. Just kept getting hurt and couldn't seem to recover. So instead, Melendez would get a chance at revenge against the first man to defeat him, Mitsuhiro Ishida with that interim lightweight title on the line. So that's still an interesting fight, although, again, not on the level. Can you, by the way, just stop right there. Can you imagine if this was, imagine if this card was Cyborg versus Carano, Riggs versus Diaz for the welterweight title, Melendez versus Thompson too for the light, you know, the, the unification of the lightweight and the interim titles, and then Verdun uh, versus Overeem for the heavyweight title. <laughs> Can you, you know, imagine? I mean, four... For the entire main card would have been title matchups with absolute marquee names. Can you imagine that? You know, I can't, but I, you do raise a question in my mind because I wonder if there would have been any politics involved with those big names not wanting to undercard a women's main event. Yeah. And we know that. Ooh, that's a good question. Today that sounds outrageous, but right. back then, um, you know, there, there was always a lot of talk about whether – there were some egos on cards that didn't want to do that. But I mean, and, and it's a legitimate question too. Would you want to put Carano and Cyborg ahead of Verdum and Overeem for the heavyweight championship? I mean, that is a good question. You know, that's a, that's a very, they, and they're also, I, I would think of it more in terms of, and, and, you know, you do raise a very good question because it's not just about pride. It's also about money. You get more money if you're in the main event. So, yeah. you know, in general, you get more money if you're in the main event. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a legitimate question at the same time. I would also wonder from a matchmaking perspective, that's four separate main events that you put all on one card. So to me, you put maybe two of those yeah. and then save the others, you know, for another card, because, Again, this was this being the first major women's matchup. I, it would be great to have another title fight on the same card to support that. You know, to make it because there may be some that are just like, ah, I don't want to watch two women scrap. I don't care if you know. I don't care about that. But I do want to see Riggs and Diaz go at it for a new welterweight title. You know what I'm saying? So right. I think it would have made more. I, I think it would have been overkill to do that. Yeah, that would have been amazing to see. But I think you might have you know, just, just overplayed your hand too quickly, too, you know, too fast. So, but that's a good question though. It's, it's an interesting question, yeah. uh, but it's worth mentioning around this time in the broader MMA business as a whole affliction, which had been holding MMA, MMA events featuring some huge fighters, including guys like Fedor Emelianenko folded up shop to become a UFC sponsor. And a week before a card that was to feature Fedor and Josh Barnett in the in the main event that, that was only supposed to happen just shortly before the card we're talking about today. Barnett had once again failed the drug test and the promotion crashed and many fighters were left holding the bag after paying trainers, sparring partners. I mean, I read an article around this time. There was a lot of anger being directed at Barnett. And I mean, look, to be fair to Barnett, you know, this was, it wasn't all on him. I mean, if the promotion had been making smarter decisions and, you know, paying fighters, what was more commensurate, what they were actually going to draw and that sort of thing, they wouldn't have been in a situation where one canceled event killed the promotion as a whole. But that said, Barnett's drug test and then the, you know, subsequent cancellation of the event overall, I've been backstage at an, at an event when it's been canceled, as we've discussed before. It's not a good feeling. And, I mean, at least this one, they didn't have to actually show up and weigh in and all that stuff because that would have been even worse. But mm -hmm. uh, but as part of that, many managers were were fighting for their fighters to be able to be on other events. They were reaching out to Strikeforce and M1 because some, some fighters, as part of the deal, they got folded over into the UFC. 
as part of this, but the ones that didn't, you know, they were trying to get them on the Strike Force cards and M1. And for Jay Huron, uh, this would pay off as he ended up joining Strike Force's ranks. And he was supposed to step in for Riggs and, and fight Diaz, but that ended up not happening either. And all, but he would end up being on the card. Also benefiting um, would be Gegard Musassi and Babalu Sobral as their fight, which was originally supposed to take place at Affliction's now canceled trilogy event, was moved over to Carano versus Cyborg. But going back to Riggs versus Diaz, instead of that fight, it would end up being replaced by Huron versus former UFC fighter Jesse Taylor. So not exactly, again, the... Uh, you know, top tier names that you would want in place of, of Riggs versus Diaz, but still very, two very capable veterans. Speaking of Fedor, he began to be courted by MMA and boxing promoters alike, including the UFC. Would Dana White finally get, uh, you know, <laughs> would, would Ahab finally get the white whale? Would he find Dana, Dana White finally get his big catch? Uh, but as you probably know, he would not due to his refusal to allow Fedor's team to co-promote. Instead, Scott Coker would land the greatest heavyweight fighter of all time. And I cannot personally, I know you can't either. I can't wait to start covering Fedor's uh, strike forces, uh, Fedor's strike force fights. Cause that's going to be awesome. And you're just uh, going to, you're just going to throw that in there, Phil, the well, greatest I, heavyweight of all time. You, you believe that in 2021 or did you believe, are you saying that was the case back in 2009? Oh no. I think he's the greatest heavyweight of all time. Okay. I, I don't yeah. I don't even think it's close. I mean, mm-hmm. who, I mean, there's, you know, obviously, you mentioned guys like Stipe, and Stipe could end up being the greatest of all time. Stipe ain't getting out of the first round. Um, very. I would not but. against Fedor. I don't think so. I, I just, I don't think. Oh, or do you mean against uh, uh, Nganu? Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. The, the big rematch there. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, no, no, I agree with you. I mean, when I say I've never watched Pride, I should say I, I've watched oh, every you know one what? of Actually, Fedor's. Hey, before before yeah. you jump into that, I got you brought. We brought up Nganu right there. I got to mm-hmm. mention. Uh, to, to listeners. Um, I've, I don't know. I didn't know anything about his story, but my brother-in-law told me about Nganu appearing on Joe Rogan's podcast recently. He said I should listen. And so I did. And it's, you know, it's long, it's three hours. Uh, but he goes into his story of, of making it out of Cameroon. And I mean, the, the insanity that he went through yeah. to try to um, get, you know, make a better life for himself. I mean, I mean, just his life was on the line multiple times. It's an incredible, incredible story. So I, I highly recommend not that Rogan needs me re- uh, recommending his podcast to get more <laughs> listeners. But um, if you've never heard uh, Nganu's story, I highly recommend you go, ch- go f- if you're, you know, if you're subscribed to Spotify, which you can do for free, I highly recommend you go just to hear that story. Cause it is an amazing, incredible story. It can be hard to follow. His English is not the, the greatest. And so if English is your first language, it, it can be hard to follow, but it is an incredible story. So I just wanted to mention that, but go ahead no. and uh, keep going. Yeah, no, I'll have to check that, check that out. Uh, no, I don't want to go out too much off course here. Um, I did, I've seen every one of Fedor's pride fights and he, he's phenomenal. Uh, I just wonder if his legacy was tarnished later in some of these losses, but um, Stipe, I, I, some people say he's the greatest heavyweight of all time. I don't know that he is. Uh, I think it's too early yeah. to say that, to be yeah. honest with you. I, I think it's too early on. And for I, that. I don't think he's getting out of the first round. I know he has a victory over Ganu before, but but this is a different fighter. And I cannot wait for John Jones. Oh, man. Francis Ganu, because holy cow. I mean, yeah. That's going to be an amazing. Whoever wins is going to be an amazing fight. Either either way, I think it's going to be great. But Engano versus Jones just guy just gives you the chills, you know. So I, I uh, 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited about either one of those. But I, yeah, I just look. I watched every one of Fedor's Pride fights. I've probably seen the majority of his fights from Pride till now. And yeah, of course he's not what he used to be. I mean, who among us is <laughs> what what he used to be? But uh, and he's probably fought too long and and all that stuff. And to see some of his losses, like the the Bader, the Ryan Bader one, was that, that was hard to watch. You know, it's yeah. it's just hard to watch our, you know, our heroes fall. But I just, you know, his, his humility and yet his just unreserved wildness, I guess, in the cage. I, I mean, he's just, and his ability to recover, like the time he got drilled by, um, they called him Ironhead, and I can't think, it was a Japanese fighter, and I can't think, I've got his picture, like I'm picturing his face, and I can't think of his head, but he got <laughs> just absolutely clocked and got the fish legs where his legs were dancing and moving underneath him, and just like a few seconds later, he's tapping the guy out with a rear naked choke. You know, I mean, getting dumped in on his head by Randleman and then, you know, surviving that and, and stop. I mean, just, just incredible, incredible fight. So, yeah, I, I, it's hard for me. And, and again, this is a guy that was fighting in Japan during a time when they weren't drug testing like, you know, <laughs> like they like they do now. And Fedor was obviously not on anything, uh, you know, so just from the eye test, you can tell he's not on anything and him destroying guys like he was. I, I really wish we had gotten to see him in the UFC. But at this point, and you see, I mean, this is when he first starts suffering his first losses not long after this. So, you know, the 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 bloom was off the rose, so to speak, and we had seen the best fighter that we were going to see. So, you know, it's very there's a very good chance that he would have been in trouble if he got into the UFC. But, man, the idea of Fedor versus Brock, I mean, mm -hmm. can you imagine Fedor versus Brock 10 years ago? I mean, that just – I you wouldn't have been able to make a bigger fight. So – I do wish we'd seen him in the UFC just so we could have seen some of that stuff. But, you know, it was – I'm obviously a fan of Scott Coker's, and, and he treated Fedor and his team right, so it would have been cool to see that too. Yeah, 10 years undefeated, right? Yep, Fedor, yeah, 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 pretty – roughly, basically. And the only, and we – people that have seen the loss to um, Tsuyoki Kosaka knows that that was garbage. That was not a real loss. I mean, it was due to a cut and just – it was – that was garbage. So – I don't, I don't put any, you know, people don't really see, we don't really count that. So we'll put it, we'll put it that way. But, uh, but yeah, but Fader signing with strike force was the catalyst for another kind of fight prior to signing the Russian Coker and Dana White had, had played nice. I mean, Dana didn't, hadn't had anything bad to say about Coker and strike force, but that all changed once Fedor rebuffed Dana and it all fell apart. And the UFC press had a new target. You also got to remember he'd been going after Tom Atencio, who was the, the head of, um, of affliction, you know, he'd been going after him and, you know, loved going after elite XC and those, you know, Gary Shaw and those guys, he loved talking smack about those guys. And now they were gone and he needed a new target. And so when, when Fedor went with Coker, uh, he started calling the promotion strike farce and said that Fedor's contract would put them out of business and he'd be fighting in front of, you know, small crowds and called them small time, said they couldn't draw, made fun of their champions for not being active, which that last part, there's some validity to that. Uh, and it would get worse and, and we'll discuss that more in the future, but this was, uh, you know, started, started a battle there. That's, you know, kind of the, the, between Dana and, and Coker, it's, you know, it's had its peaks and valleys for sure. And that's kind of continued on to this day. You know, Phil, I wanted to put a little bit of what you just said into more context from Dave Meltzer and the wrestling observer in the newsletter, right before the show, what he wrote was. War was officially declared on August 6th between Ultimate Fighting Championship and Strikeforce, which finalized a three-fight, one-year deal with the consensus top-rated heavyweight Fed Fedor Emelianko on August 2nd. 
And here's the thing. This is me now. Like, like Dana White's quotes are off the chart. They should have stayed the way they were, said UFC President Dana White. We'll see what happens. If they want to fight me, we're going to fight. You know how that goes. We know how it ends. They have no money. These guys have no money and they have no distribution. Four effing people watch Showtime. The last fight they put on, do you know how many people watch that fight? 245,000 people watch that fight. And they're referring to the St. Louis show on June, June, uh, June 4th. The show did a 1.04 rating and 275,000 viewers with Nick Diaz versus Scott Smith and Robbie Lawler versus Jake Shields down from 385,000 viewers for Diaz versus Shamrock. People look for the results, but they didn't watch it. You don't run a business that way. So so Dana White is obviously very concerned about Strikeforce to the point where he's trying to damage their brand at this time. And even though he will say all these things, no point to the ratings. I mean, obviously, more than four people watch Showtime. And and UFC or Strikeforce was becoming a little bit of a, of a threat here. Uh, but it's interesting to see Dana get all hot just because he couldn't sign Fedor. Yeah, it's there's definitely a sour grapes element to it. But but to be fair, and we've talked about this, they really were not much of a threat. I mean, they could have evolved into one at that point. The idea being that Fedor could be that big of a draw, and they had all this influx of guys from Elite XC, and now they got a few guys from Affliction, and you know you're putting on the first women's event, which Dana won't touch that. So there's a a differentiator in your product. I mean, there is definitely could have been a fear for that. But numbers-wise, they weren't coming close. I mean, Strikeforce at best, it, it was Strikeforce at best was competing with like their like Ultimate Fighter events, you know, fights like their, you know, not their major arena shows. Like at best, they were going to be. I, now, this event we're talking about tonight drew almost fourteen thousand people, so yeah. the numbers were there. I, and this is where I don't understand the business side of it. But and we'll again we'll get to what the gate was. It was like seven hundred and eighty-five thousand or something like that. It's like if if UFC draws 14,000 fans to a show at this time, there it's easy like a couple million dollar gate. And I so I don't maybe the tickets were sold at much cheaper. That's I guess that's what I would assume because if they're drawing if Strike Force is drawing similar numbers, why aren't they drawing similar gates? I I don't I don't quite understand that. Um, but I think there was some validity to what Dana was saying, but at the same time I also think there was some sour grapes and and some preemptive striking going on there if if i can use that term as far as trying to downplay them before they do become a real threat that makes sense yeah you know it's it's the whole thing is the bay area and san jose they were pretty much able to draw really well there it would go up and down but if they had a good main event and they had some locals they were able to draw well so the fact that they were filled out arena or come close to it every time was significant, but they were not charging a lot for those tickets. I mean, those tickets were. If were I was not, going in person and I was paying to get in, like I did for this show, they yeah. weren't. They were not charging a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they were not charging a lot, and so that's the difference. The other thing is, it's just this weird fragmentation. Is UFC owns everything about UFC, and they weren't going to go do business with Fedor's people. And here you have Strikeforce, and you know you mentioned earlier they had approved the main events and all of these different strands, and that makes it really tough for for any company to sort of take off. And but the other thing that to counter Dana White's point is like all these companies are just one or two big moments away from taking off. Like Strikeforce, all they needed was their Ultimate Fighter one finale moment 
for them to take off. So it wasn't like he's downplaying some little indie show in some part of the country. I mean, they were close. They were on the verge, and so much so that the UFC eventually bought them. Yeah, no, I, there's... There, I, you know, I, I don't think that Strike Force. I've said this before. I don't think Strike Force was ever a major threat to the UFC. Just, ba- just based on the numbers. If you just look at the drawing numbers, I don't think they were ever a big threat. But they were a viable alternative, and it, it, the potential was there at this time for it to become a huge threat. So I, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I also don't necessarily blame Dana for not pulling the trigger on the deal. I didn't blame him at that time either. As much as I wanted to see it, I was happy that my favorite promotion was going to get, get Fedor. So I was happy about that. I didn't blame Dana because if you open the door to where a fighter comes and says, all right, I want you to co-promote, you know, well, we don't co you know, we're the UFC, we're the biggest game in town. You know, we don't co-promote with other promotions. What benefit does, does that serve us? And you open the door for other fighters to ask for the same thing. And, you know, yeah, it, it just, I, I don't, I don't necessarily blame Dana for it at all, you know? And, and I think in the long run, yes, it would have been awesome to see Fedor Brock and, you know, some of the other fights that they could have put on, but at the same Fedor Trig, I mean, there, there are a million fights I would have loved to have seen, but at the same time, you know, that was, it was a heavy price. So I, I, I get it. I totally get it. So, all right. Well, moving forward, uh, we do want to mention the, what was going on in the, the rest of the MMA where we already talked about affliction. Uh, we were still Bellator still had its initial, its initial TV or, uh, its initial season was done. So same, same champs that they had feather Joe Soto at featherweight, Eddie Alvarez at lightweight Lyman good at welterweight and Hector Lombard at middleweight. Uh, we did have one change in the UFC as far as their champions, BJ Penn still 155 pounds, GSP still at welterweight Anderson Silva still at Millerweight champ and light Leota Machida still the light heavyweight champion, but finally Brock Lesnar was the undisputed heavyweight champion as he defeated Frank Mir via TKO at UFC 100 to unify the titles. And it is worth quickly mentioning the, uh, the very infamous, I, I, which why the, I actually still own UFC 100 on DVD. I actually still have that, that DVD downstairs, uh, in my, uh, my entertainment room. And, uh, that is such a fun card. It's such a great card, but that was such an exciting fight. And to see Lesnar just brutalize Frank Mir was, was entertaining to watch. I didn't like all the post cage antics and like going back and, you know, cussing in Mir's face and all that stuff. And then he says, uh, do you do you remember what he said after after about, the about Sable? Well, so so <laughs> Rena Maros or I guess Rena Lesnar um, comes into the cage afterwards, and he said something about him still having enough energy to climb on top of his wife that night or something like that. Yeah. But no, then uh, you remember that Bud Light. It was a big deal that the UFC oh. had gotten Budweiser as a as a sponsor. And something like Brock, they wouldn't give Brock separate money or something like that. And so he said, well, I'm going to make sure I have a Coors Light when I get home (laughs) or something like that. And got in a bunch of trouble with Dana. And then at the post-fight press conference, he he made sure to have a Budweiser, you know, with him. And he drank it and made a big deal out of, you know, I'm all about Budweiser or something like that. So shows you that Lesnar's no meathead and he knows how to do business. And Brock Lesnar is one of those guys. It doesn't matter whether he's an MME, MMA or um, pro wrestling. Pretty much can do and say whatever he wants. Pretty much, <laughs> he prints money wherever he pretty goes. Much. <laughs> Man, and by the way, we we you know we don't we we always uh, I say we don't talk wrestling much on the show. We we actually reference it quite a bit, but 
Um, I did order the last AEW pay-per-view revolution, which as we record this and as it gets posted is just a, a couple weekends ago. And I was really hopeful. And Josh, you and I were texting back and forth about this. I was really hopeful. I was pulling for Brock Lesnar being their big surprise signee. You were hoping it was going to be CM Punk. Uh, and ended up being neither one of them ended up being Christian and which was, you know, which was decent, but I, I was really hoping it'd be Brock. I was hoping they were going to show up to, at Brock's house with a Brinks truck and bring him over. Cause that would have been amazing. Yeah. I, I obviously as a pro wrestling fan, if you could see, you know, a big guy from another promotion join another rival promotion, that's like what we love. That's like nineties. Right. Yeah. That's and you know. NWO, you know, WCW, NWO, WWF at that time. Yeah. But I, I would just have a hard, a hard time seeing Brock do that, knowing that he's a part timer and all those guys in, the, in AEW, a lot of them anyway, are you know they're workers, and I just can't see any Kenny Omega having to be like, I got a job to this dude, oh, no man, way, you, you know. Like, can you imagine Lesnar versus Moxley, Lesnar versus I mean Lesnar versus Omega, the way those guys both can sell, and I, I just. Oh man, that would have been exciting. So yeah, I was a little, I was a little bummed when it was wasn't Brock. But well, maybe yeah, maybe, I, I it'll, maybe it'll happen someday. Who knows? Yeah, Who I knows? mean, who knows? He's still young enough to be able to to at least pull off a part time schedule. So, all right, but uh, let's get back to MMA. Closest UFC event to Corona versus Cyborg uh, was UFC one hundred and one. Took place in Philadelphia a week before the Strike Force event. We're discussing the first UFC event to take place in the city of brotherly love. The event drew over 17,000 fans for a gate of over 3.5 million, as well as a buy rate of 850,000. So quickly, uh, let's, you know, what we were just discussing as far as what uh, Strikeforce would draw. So Strikeforce drew almost 14,000 to the event that we're discussing. And the the gate, like I said, I think it was around 785 or it was somewhere between 750 and it was under 800,000. So UFC draws 3,000 more fans but their gate is well over three and a half million dollars. Maybe it's maybe they're selling lots of merch too. Maybe that was part of it, and Strikeforce wasn't. Um, you know, and, and their buy rate on that that doesn't include the pay per view buy rate of eight hundred fifty thousand people. I mean, uh, Showtime being a premium cable channel, this one drew. I, again, we're, we'll get into the numbers, but I think it was like five seventy six or something, five hundred seventy six thousand. So it's just not much of a comparison. I mean, there it's you know we're. It's not, they're in the same arena, but they're not sitting in the front row by any stretch of the imagination. So, uh, and there were not a ton of notable fights on this card. Johnny Hendricks, TKO'd Amir Sadala in only 29 seconds of the first round. So that was, you know, that was memorable. But, and then in the co-main event, champion, uh, middleweight champion, Anderson Silva moved up to light heavyweight and took on Forrest Griffin. And this had to be, do you, do you remember this fight? Do you, do you remember seeing this fight, Josh? I've read about this fight, but I, I don't recall that I've ever seen this fight. You, you um, need to yeah. go back and watch it. I mean, it, unless you just are in love with Forrest Griffin, because then it's hard to watch. But he was, I, 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 you know, we're not going to talk about Luke Rockhold right now. Yeah. You know, I'm not <laughs> yeah. in love with Forrest Griffin. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, all right. Good. Um, but I mean, he was just outclassed by the spider. I mean, it was just there's this really incredible clip of Silva slipping Griffin's punches. And it's a sight to behold. And in the end. The spider slips two punches, and then nails Griff- Griffin with a sort of like walking away right jab to the face, mm-hmm. and that was it. I mean, that like Griffin goes down. And I don't think he was knocked out. I just think he was done, and the re- <laughs> the referee saw it, and Griffin was so embarrassed that he literally ran out of the cage in shame. Like he literally jogged out of the cage. He didn't stay in. Mm-hmm. Rogan and called it one of the most embarrassing knockouts in UFC, UFC history, and it pro- and it was. 
Uh, so it was, it's worth checking out just for the sheer kind of, uh, you know, off factor of it. It's, it's yeah. worth checking out. Uh, and then in the main event, BJ Penn defended his light, heavy, his lightweight title against Kenny Florian with a fourth round rear naked choke. So, I mean, there was a couple, you know, memorable fights, but, or, uh, notable fights as far as name value, but this wasn't like a huge, this definitely wasn't UFC 100 as far as star power goes. And they still drew, you know, this huge gate and huge, you know, amount of fans and the buy rate and all that stuff. Um, we are actually going to cover two Strikeforce Challenger shows here. You're going to start to see those ramp up. You're going to be discussing those more. Um, we did miss the first one during our, our Lawler versus Shields episode. I just didn't, the, the format for the research I do, um, the site that I go to to find this information kind of changed it up. And so I missed that first one. So apologies on that. But on May 15, 2009, at the Save Mart Center in Fresno, California, Strikeforce Challengers Evangelista versus Ana took place. Uh, it drew 2,322 2, fans. LeVar Johnson, already 12-3 and three at this point, made his Hexagon debut, and he knocked out Carl Sumenutafa. Sum- Easy for you to say. Yeah, seriously. Carl Sumenutafa in 18 seconds. I hope I never have to say that name again. Sorry, Carl. <laughs> uh, Misha Tate made her return to strike force. She lost by decision to Sarah Kaufman, who was 8-0 with all TKO-KO finishes at that point. Billy Evangelista originally suffered his first loss via DQ when he kneed uh, Ana in the head, uh, which is a callback to uh, Jan and uh, Sterling that just happened with Sterling taking that that knee from Jan, the champ, and get, becoming the first UFC champion to win his title by DQ. Not this is exactly out. why we have the rule now. I, I understand. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. why. It's all, it's all Billy Evangelista. Yeah, this, 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 uh, this event that was not – I don't think it was televised, and it was in front of 2,322 fans. Yep, this is exactly this. This fight changed you uh, MMA history. But no, no. Uh, but do you realize Ric Flair would be like a 82 time champion if you could lose a title by, by disqualification? DQ, absolutely. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> oh God. Um, but anyway, the fight that that result was overturned when it was determined that Ana had fibbed and then he had actually connected with his shoulder. <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome! Uh, and then on uh, June nineteenth, two thousand nine, Strikeforce Challengers Villas and Yor versus Cyborg took place. No, not that Cyborg. Uh, the event drew two thousand eight hundred thirty six fans to the Showware Center in Kent, Washington, for an, a live gate of eighty five thousand eight hundred five dollars. I don't know how they paid approximately 10 or 12 fighters with just that but okay lots of recognizable names on this card card lyle Beerbaum made a splash by submitting Dwayne bang ludwig via bulldog choke lyle is somebody we'll discuss more as we go along here is the only fighter in my career that i actually managed for a short time uh dennis hallman choked out justin davis with a rear naked choke and then your man crush luke rockhold Got a rear naked choke win over Corey, the one Devella, who apparently was not the one after all. And then Sarah Kaufman decision, current WWE star Shayna Baszler, the current uh, women's tag team champion, along with Nia Jax. So I have, to, I have to ask you, Phil, when you managed Fancy Pants, did you have a tennis racket, a telephone, <laughs> a cane? Yes, and what I wore you? those big, like, big aviator style glasses too yeah absolutely <laughs> no 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 prop huh you just yeah, you know no, did no, your business I just, so. just just straight up just did my business so <laughs> well that's that's uh, why you only managed one fighter that's so. right that's why i never got another chance at it that's right <laughs> uh but uh in the co-main event tim kennedy made his strike force debut by getting nick the goat thompson to submit to punches and in the main event Cyborg Santos was on the wrong end of a split decision win that went to Joey Villasenor. So some big, big names on that card, actually. 
But we have finally arrived. Here we are. Strike Force Corano versus Cyborg took place on August 15, 2009. We're a half hour into our episode, and we are 35 minutes, and we are just now getting to the event itself. So there's lots to get to here, but so that's all right. Uh, the event drew 13,976 fans for a total gate of 736,000, so less than what I said Earlier it was actually under and seven under seven hundred and fifty. It was broadcasted on Showtime. It drew five hundred seventy six thousand fans. So I was right on that. On commentary would be Gus Johnson, Moro Inala, and Frank Shamrock reuniting. So going to be a, a good one on that. And then Jimmy Lennon Jr. was handling the ring announcing. All right, let's get to the undercard and a two hundred and five pound matchup. Scott Lighty defeated Mike Cook via TKO. Punt coming by coming by way of punch to the body at two hundred five of the first round. Lighty was a former kickboxer who had made the switch to MMA, and he fought some some notable names: Carter Williams, Mighty Mo, Pat Barry, Gary Goodridge, Dewey Cooper, Stefan Laco. Solid mix of of kickboxing and MMA fighters on his record. So we could see Coker dipping into the field of former K one fighters. Once again, and of course, Mike Cook had fought already in Strike Force twice, going one and one. Uh, this was all Lighty. He dropped Cook a couple times before finishing him off, and that would be it. Lighty would be back in Strike Force. Cook would not. In the next bout, Alexander Trevino defeated Isaiah Hill via submission, come by way of key lock at a 356 of the first round in a lightweight bout. Good ground fight, lots of reversals. Uh, the Kung Lee trained Hill looked like he held his own, but Trevino was just too too much and, and got a very slick Americana key lock on, which Hill tapped out to, and he was holding his arm afterwards. It looked like he, he was hurt, but good good win for Trevino. Yeah, I was struck by his physique. He's very long, very yeah. lean, uh, almost had a swimmer's body. Uh, I'm not somebody you want to be doing jujitsu with or you know on the ground with. Uh, I just remember thinking, I haven't seen a lot of guys – built like this you know he's very yeah. long and lean yeah no he, he had a he had a good look and he didn't I, I think his final record is like nine and ten he didn't really you know go anywhere as a fighter but um but definitely had a had a uh, had a good skill set uh in the next about 170 pounds james terry defeated zach buccia via tko coming by way of head kick and punches at 123 of the first round this is actually a rematch from shamrock versus diaz at which terry took a decision win that but this one be much more of a decisive ending and just, I mean, very quick fight, big win for the Kung Lee trained Terry, very nice finish of a tough fit in book book, uh, just landed just a, a, just a really solid head kick. Yeah. That was a good, wicked head kick. It reminded me of yeah. uh, Holly Holm, Ronda Rousey, John Jones, Daniel Cormier. And it was, it was just right on point And was, you know, kind of a highlight moment for the undercard. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Terry would be back in strike for several more times. Well, this would be it for Buccia, who's still active, actually, and he holds an 18 and 12 record. All right, in 155-pound bout, Justin Wilcox, the silverback, defeated David Douglas via submission, coming by way of rear naked choke at 316 of the third round. Douglas had won three straight undercard fights in Elite XC coming into this one, while Wilcox had lost to Mitsuhiro Ishida in his only previous strike force fight. So getting into this one, Douglas nailed Wilcox a couple times early on in the first, putting him down. But Wilcox, he, he got a chin, he's got a chin and persevered. And the rest of the fight was Wilcox taking Douglas down and wearing him out. And Douglas lasted till the third round when Wilcox got him in that rear naked choke. And uh, just a, a good solid win for, for Wilcox, for sure. Good win for the wrestler. Yeah, I mean, what strikes me about the silverback, and obviously this is where he gets his name, but, I mean, he just has this incredible physique for kind of a smaller fighter. He definitely has a 
a wrestler's body, like no fat at all. He looked like a little scrunched down <laughs> Brock Lesnar. Um, and obviously that's why he gets his name. But he certainly, um, as Gorilla Monsoon would say, you don't get that kind of body hanging out at the bus stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, good callback. Yeah, he, I, he to me he looked like, especially since they're the same weight class, he looked like Justin Wilco or um, Justin Wilcox. Justin Wilcox looked like Sean Shirk without being on steroids. So, um, you know, just a very, <laughs> yeah. very strong wrestler, very compact, you know, not real long arms and just got that, you know, he's a wrestler and it looked like it. So, uh, but both these guys will be back in strike force, so we'll discuss some more in the future. And then the final card, or the final bout on the undercard, Jay Huron defeated Jesse Taylor via unanimous decision. Uh, at a, this was a 170-pound bout. Again, this was a replacement for the original Riggs versus Diaz fight, which I'm sure would have been on the main card. Uh, but, you know, these two guys, they're both known for their wrestling, and, and it showed. And the fight pretty much consisted of Taylor throwing less than stellar one-off punches and kicks and Huron avoiding them and then taking down his opponent. And referee Herb Dean was the only one getting cheers, and that was when he stood the fighters up. So uh, not really not really a great fight, not really much to talk about here. I mean, Huron probably wants to get a win coming in, but just not just was not in the most uh, most exciting fashion for sure. Uh, but both Jay and Jesse will be back in strike force one more time, so we'll discuss them a bit more in the future. But the main card is here. We have arrived in a heavyweight bout. Fabricio Verdun defeated Mike Kyle via submission, coming by way of guillotine at 124 of the first round. This would be Verdun's Strike Force debut, and he was a big signing for Strike Force. I mean, he was he had been released by the UFC after losing to Junior Dos Santos at UFC 90, uh, but he was still a big name. He was 11, 4, and 1. He had beaten Brandon Vera and Gabriel Gonzaga in the octagon previously to that loss to Dos Santos, and he had some other big wins under his belt. And until I started doing this research, I had never realized this before, but Verdun is the only fighter in the entire world to beat both Fedor and his brother, Alexander Emelianenko, who was also a very, very good fighter. If you look up his record, mm-hmm. yeah. he's an incredible fighter. Also a very scary guy. He's one of the most scary back tattoos or back tats that you will uh, you'll ever see and, and serve time in prison um, for something, something sexual. I don't remember exactly what it was, but he actually got a, a fairly lengthy um, prison sentence. And, and yeah, so he's a, actually kind of a scary guy. So I, I'm, you know, wouldn't, uh, it was, yeah, uh, Emelianenko was accused of assaulting and raping his former housekeeper uh, in May of 2014, as well as stealing her passport. He pleaded not guilty, claimed the sex was consensual. The prosecutors were asking for five years in prison, and in May of 2015, he was found guilty and sentenced to four and a half years in prison, along with a fine. Um, his promoter stated that he was going to appeal, but the appeal was declined, and he was released on parole in October 2016. So that sounds kind of weird to get five years for rape or four and a half years for rape and, and only serve about a year, a little over a year and change. Basically that's, that's kind of crazy. Was that Um, in Russia? Yeah, that was in Russia. So, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. Corruption. I I don't know. You know, I I, I don't know, but kind of crazy. And then he returned to MMA um, the next year and he's still, still active today. And uh, he actually has a win over Gabriel Gonzaga in 2018 uh, got a win over Virgil Zwicker in 2017, but his last fight was a loss to Magomedev Ismailov, um, which was July 24th of last year, bringing his record to 28 and eight. So he's, I mean, he's not his brother as far as skills and all that stuff go, but, uh, but that's a pretty big deal, especially back then. So, um, Verdun also had a win over Alistair Overeem, as we discussed earlier. 
Kyle was 13-6-1. He was coming off that big win over Fajal Cavalcante at Waller versus Shields. So this would be a, a big-time opportunity for the AKA project uh, if he could if he could pull it out. So we'll, we'll see, but uh, it does not happen. <laughs> uh, but famous, famous pride ref, Yuji Shimada was the third man in the cage. And, again, me being a big pride fan, this was – that was fun for me to see. I, I know you got a little bit more information there, but that was pretty cool. Yeah, I was doing a little research on that. And according to Figure Four Weekly, the story on that was, well, I'll just read what they wrote at the time, was the referee for this fight was the famous pride ref Yuji Shimada. He flew over here with Mitsuhiro Ishida's, Ishida's team and then actually asked if he could referee Ishida's fight, which is quite amazing to think. The commission said no. That wasn't going to fly, but they offered him this fight instead. So that's how you get you get him as a, God, as a referee. I, thank you for the backstory and on that. And I also, I mean, you know, I'm not saying that UG would have been asking to referee Ishida's fights because he had anything, you know, untoward in mind for that. You know, it's probably just like, hey, I want to, he's the only Japanese fighter in the card and I know him and all that stuff. But obviously there's a bit of a conflict of interest uh, when the guy, you know, comes from the home country of the guy that's flying in to fight and then asked to reference, you know, that's uh, the commission was smart in saying no to that. Just, just to be on the safe side. Uh, <laughs> I have but, so many jokes I could make, but it's 2021. So and I'm you can't make to. any of those. Yeah. I'm sure pro wrestling jokes, but okay. I'm not going to make them. They're dated. Okay. okay go ahead. All right. Tell me later. Um, <laughs> But uh, so anyway, so let's get back into the fight. But Verdun and Kyle were actually apparently very familiar with each other as they had roomed together while in Croatia training with Mirko Krokop. So that was that's kind of interesting. I wouldn't have known there was a connection there. Uh, but Kyle had a couple or a couple good moments early on. He looked good. But as often happens when Verdun is in the cage, the Brazilian bided his time and waited for his opponent, which uh, to make a mistake, essentially. Um, which presented itself when things went to the mat. And once down, Verdun caught a, a guillotine, which Kyle fought, but it was just, it was in too deep. And the San Jose fighter had to tap. And very nice win for Verdun, had, who had recently moved to America, by the way. So kind of a, a but kind of a big deal for Verdun to win his first fight after moving to the States after, after that. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Kyle, as listeners of this show know. And, uh, Come on, Phil, work with me here. What's with those eyebrows? Did he just come from Supercuts? Like, what kind of an MMA fighter does their eyebrows before a fight? Am I nuts here? Or you don't notice no, Maybe this. if he doesn't, maybe they're a, a hazard. Maybe the, like the commission says that his eyes would – maybe he just grows crazy eyebrows so that he has to trim them <laughs> or the commission won't let him fight. Like, they're supposed to cut their nails and stuff like that. So maybe it was that that kind of situation. I'll just uh, be an optimist. <laughs> Any fighter who tries to look too manicured walking into the cage, I just can't. But it's more, it's his other stuff that he's done in previous fights that annoys me. So, yeah, um, I was going to say, out of all his, out of all his uh, offensive acts, his eyebrows, I think, are at the bottom of the pile when it comes to all the things, the other stuff that he's done, like, <laughs> you know, going after fighters after the ref stopped the fight and, you yeah, know, hitting them, yeah, biting times. and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but, but this was, this was, um, a good showcase by Verdum. I have sort of trauma when it comes to Fabricio because as we are going to get to one day, the moment that Fedor tapped out um, yeah. is very, very traumatic for me. But uh, oh, me too. I, I mean, I, I like Verdum. He's a big guy and he's, you know, he's, he's a really good fighter, great jujitsu and he looked great here and he's so skilled and he's probably a little bit underrated in the annals of he MMA. I, I agree with you. I agree mm -hmm. with you on that. 
I mean, here's a guy, you know, he's he beat um, Overeem, he beat Fedor, he beat Cain Velasquez. I mean, he's somebody who's who's really good, and he's a heavyweight, you know. So uh, this was a good show for him, you know, I like him, and, and uh, he... Uh, he he did great here, you know. He's just too big for Kyle too. I mean, Kyle's you know just yeah. He's not, a light heavy. He's a yeah. light heavyweight. So so it would have been an upset to see anything otherwise. Yeah, it, it def. I do think he's one of the most underrated fighters, uh, heavyweight fighters of all time. And he's been man, dude. He's been fighting since two thousand two, and he's still you know going. And I'm looking through his his record right now. Wins over Gabriel Gonzaga, uh, Alistair Overeem. Uh, you know, as we mentioned, uh, Alexander Emelianenko got beat Gonzaga again, beat Brandon Vera, uh, and then ahead, looking ahead, he beats Bigfoot Silva, as we've already discussed. He beat Fedor. He beat Roy Nelson. He beat uh, 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 <laughs> Big Nog Noguera, if I can talk. He beat Travis Brown, Mark Hunt. He submitted Cain Velasquez, as you mentioned. Travis Brown again. You know, Walt Harris. Uh, he just beat uh, Alexander Gustafson in his uh, debut heavyweight, and that was actually his last fight, and that was the fight of the night. So, I mean, you know, he's he is definitely one of the heavyweight greats. Absolutely yeah. one of the heavyweight greats, and, and he does not get the uh, – I don't think he gets the respect and the attention that he deserves for sure. So anyways, but both these two would be back in strike force with Verdun treat teed up for some massive fights inside the hexagon. So looking forward to getting to those. All right. We're at the uh, interim lightweight, uh, the interim lightweight title fight. Gilbert Melendez defeated Mitsuhiro Ishida via TKO combined by a wave punches at three fifty six of the third round to defend that belt. Melendez 15 and two was holding uh, the interim belt, like we mentioned, but had alternated wins and losses over his last four fights. His first loss in his career had come at the hands of Ishida, so this was a chance at revenge for El Nino, as we mentioned earlier. Ishida, 18-5-2, and two, had won two of his last three bouts, including a bout with Justin Wilcox at the second Play- Playboy Mansion show. All right, we'll get to the fight itself. Herschel Walker in the house. That was pretty cool to see. Uh, one of the greatest athletes of, of uh, just any, really anything. I mean, one of the greatest college football players of all time for sure. But it was it was pretty cool to see Walker there, and they interviewed him uh, inside the Golden Circle near the cage, and you know they asked him if he was up for fu- a fight, and and he basically said he was. So that was that was interesting to see, and we would see him inside the hexagon for a couple fights. It was clear right away to me that Gilbert just did not want this one to go to the mat. Ishida was consistently looking for a place to shoot in while Gil kept his right hand cocked and ready to throw at every opportunity. Ishida would shoot, Melendez would defend and strike, and that's how the first couple of rounds went. Ishida was bloodied up a bit in the second frame, and Melendez was clearly getting stronger as the fight wore on. And then in the third, Ishida, while still dangerous, was in the cage of the superior fighter in Melendez. It was obvious, and in the end, Gil got back mount and rained down punches until Herb Dean stepped in and just vintage Gilbert Melendez in this fight. Yeah, I thought that Melendez looked bigger. I, I don't know if you saw that, Phil, but he looked more muscular. Uh, you know, Gilbert's always been in good shape, but I never looked at him as a guy who had, like, muscles and biceps. And in this fight, he looked like he put on a little bit of muscle and so probably made a difference on the ground. Gilbert is always smart. You know, that's sort of his hallmark is that even though he can mix it up, he's really smart and tactical. And he he fought a great fight here. He learned from the loss. He fought different. And he just made fewer mistakes. Um, Once Ishida saw his blood, I think the tone of the fight changed dramatically. You know, there's that iconic clip there where he's 
he's like, he feels the blood coming down and puts his, his glove up there. He like looks to see if there's blood. And once you're aware of the blood, it's, I think it's a significant psychological disadvantage, at least in this case. Um, Melendez was just careful. And I think that's where we see Melendez's best work in his career. When he puts his athleticism, his willingness to stand and fight with his intelligence. Now, now that being said, he can be a little bit too cautious, which we saw, you know, I, I, I never liked the Benson Henderson fight because I felt he was too cautious. Sometimes he's a little too afraid of getting knocked out. But um, in this fight, I just thought he was just the wiser, smarter, stronger fighter, more tactical. And in the post match interview he you know he's like i don't even want this belt this is josh thompson's belt uh just really realistic too and that's what i always appreciated about melendez he was very grounded he, he felt like the same guy who was stepping in the cage was also the same guy that you could have a conversation about the fight with steeped in reality no that's a that's a good uh, overall look at gilbert and I, I agree with you and especially in this fight i think he was just supremely confident and you could see that coming through and uh and it paid off for him so i i i, I agree with you good good points made there uh sheeta was done with strike force after this loss he fought four more times in mma going two and two to close out his career gilbert would finally get his rematch with josh thompson at evolution in december of 2009 so that's in just a we'll be covering that in just a few shows and I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing that one for sure all right, we arrived at the co-main event, 205-pound title fight. Greg or Gegard Musasi, excuse me, defeated Hinato Babalu Sobral via KO, come by way of punches at one minute of the first round to win the Strikeforce Light Heavyweight title. Of course, these two were supposed to fight for a title two weeks prior to Corona versus Cyborg at that canceled Affliction event, uh, so I was glad to see it got moved over here. Babalu had won five straight, including taking the Strikeforce Light Heavyweight title from Bobby Southworth. After that, he tapped out Sokaju at the second Affliction event, so he was on a very nice run. But nothing compared to Musasi, who I do not think gets the attention or the credit that he deserves. I mean, you never hear his name mentioned as far as the Mount Rushmore of, you know, the greats. But I, I just, I mean, a guy that could go back and forth between middleweight and light heavyweight and have equal success in both. You know, some of the uh, we're going to go over just some of his wins up to this point in his career, never mind where he's at today. But he was 25, 2 and 1 coming into this one. He had won 12 straight fights, which included wins over Mark Hunt. OK, Mark Hunt, heavyweight, who like <laughs> essentially had to cut weight to make light or to make the heavyweight limit at times. He Musassi beat him. Jacare Souza, Melvin Manhove, Dennis Kang, Cyborg Santos, and Hector Lombard all in that 12 fight streak. I mean, and and you got I got to mention the Jacare fight. That was the finals of the Dream Middleweight Grand Prix uh, tournament. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. I didn't hadn't seen it until recently. Jacare was coming down with a punch. Uh, Musassi was on his back, and Musassi up kicks at like the perfect time and knocks the Brazilian out. I mean, it was a killer you know, killer knockout. I mean, you just, you don't see that very often. And so, yeah, I don't think Masasi gets the, the credit he deserves. And yeah, that, that, that up kick, like it's worth going to watch because I, I don't recall seeing that. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, he's actually kind of in trouble and he just takes out Jacare, who's Jacare is a jujitsu master. <laughs> it was crazy. Of course, Jacare is younger in his career at this time, but that was a brilliant, brilliantly timed up kick. Absolutely. And by the way, as we record this again, March 2021, he's 35 years old. Oh. Yeah, this isn't like Musassi's like at the tail end of his career. I mean, he's 35 years old. So, 
again, this is 2009. So this is coming up on 12 years ago. So he's 23, maybe 24 at this time. And he's got 25 wins. He's got 28 total. I mean, dude, like what, what is what? (laughs) Like this is, he's, I mean, how can he not be, considered one of the absolute best of all time. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. You know, let me just say say something there is, this is what we see in MMA. You know, we have so many Brazilian fighters, and obviously Gegard, you know, he's, he's sort of like Dutch-Persian. Um, these fighters, where English is not their first language, and, the, and these companies did not figure out a way to promote them, it's, it's sort of unfortunate, because just because they couldn't talk in a way that could drive people to the events really really missing out on some of the best fighters ever i mean i mean i'm going to talk about musasi in a second but like yeah musasi is great he's incredible and it's he can't cut a promo yeah and it's he's sad not the mo- he's not the yeah. most exciting guy on the mic by yeah. a stretch but yeah i mean and and we'll We'll talk about him more in the future, but I'm I'm looking at his record, and I he, by the way he beat Gary Goodridge um, not long after the uh, uh, yeah yeah Dynamite uh, New Year's Eve in 2009 he beat Gary Goodridge, which is just kind of crazy. But after this fight, he beats Sokaju, he beats Goodridge before he, he loses to uh, uh, King Mo, uh, but then you know, he's got a OVP uh, Mike Kyle. Mark Munoz, Dan Henderson, Telus Lytus, Tiago Santos, Vitor Belfort. You all remember that one, the head kick and the punches. Uh, Chris Weidman, Alexander Slomenko, uh, Rafael Carvalho, who was who was uh, had won the uh, the middleweight championship and he won the belt the Bellator middleweight championship uh, in that fight. He defends it against Rory McDonald, just overwhelms the smaller fighter, and um, I mean just. Leo uh, beat Leota Machida last year. I mean, this or 2019, excuse me, and then beats Douglas Lima by decision in October of last year. I mean, this guy is just incredible. I mean, he is 41, 47 and seven, 47, Jesus. seven and two, and he's not fighting nobodies. Yeah. So if he had like a Jim Cornette, <laughs> you know, if they had those types <laughs> of managers, I mean, who God, who knows where he'd be this? I mean, he's, Bellator middleweight title, Dream middleweight and light heavyweight title, uh, the Strike Force light heavyweight title, fastest, 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 if I can say it, fastest stoppage in a Strike Force title bout, which was that was this this fight with Bablu set the record. You know, got, uh, I, I mean, just just one of the absolute greats. I don't know why he never. I don't think he ever got a title shot in the UFC. I, I don't. I don't think he ever did. Um, no. So. You know, which is which is unfortunate as I'm looking through. Yeah, he never got a title fight in the UFC, which makes no sense other than, you know, what Dana doesn't want to put give guys opportunities that didn't, you know, grow up in the UFC, which that I don't think that's the case. So it's just kind of unfortunate. I think that's what keeps him from getting mentioned is that he never even got a crack at a UFC title. But God, what an incredible fighter. So, yeah. All right, this would be a quick but decisive one. Musassi just reminded me so much of Fedor here. I mean, so relaxed, so calm to start things off. The two clinch, and Bablu ends up on his back against the fence, and Musassi just took over from there and just starts raining down these brutally accurate punches from top position, and they put Bablu out cold. Uh, Musassi, being the anti-Mike Kyle, stopped when he saw Bablu <laughs> was out. <laughs> Uh, but what an incredible U.S. debut for Gegard Musassi. I mean, just just incredible. And, and I, we're going to talk a little bit more about him. But, um, you know, just just such a great 
stamp, I guess, for Musasi as far as like, hey, I'm you know planting his flag and saying I'm here, I'm somebody that needs to be reckoned with, and keep your eyes on me. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite fighters of all time, and you really got to watch him to really appreciate him. He is incredibly underrated. You just said that, uh, but his style, okay, he was he had no wasted energy. He's he's extremely tactical. He's like an assassin. I mean, he was so quiet in terms of how he would attack. But when he would attack, he would not miss much. I mean, he was so cool, cooler than the other side of the pillow in this fight. When they're when they're uh, looking at each other, I mean, he looks like he just woke up out of bed. You know, his right, hair is all right. messed up. You remember that? Like, it's like, wake up, gay guard. You know, you look like, you know, you're not ready to fight here. It looks like you're ready to brush your teeth. But he's so skilled uh, with his striking and uh, such a pleasure to work with. This will be my last wrestling reference, I think, of the show. Uh, he's kind of like a you Daniel. Can never, you can never make that promise. <laughs> he's kind of like a Daniel Bryan. Like, he's just so good to appreciate and watch in his uh, his cage work. Um, you know, and I've interviewed Musasi a couple of times back in my reporting MMA days. And... I would say, you know, I had a pretty good interview with him once and he talked about how his biggest <clears throat> obstacles were that he didn't take every fight consistently the same way in his camps. That, you know, he was, I mean, think about what you just said. He was so good, so young, right? And so when you're young, you may be a great fighter, but you're still maturing as a person. And so he would talk about, you know, some fights he would not go into camp. He wouldn't train as well, and it would show. And then other fights he would, and he would just be masterful and dominant. And so, you know, toward the end of his career, he's still, I guess, active. But, you know, there might have been some issues there where, you know, he maybe he doesn't get up for certain fights. But Gegard Musasi, when he trained well, when he prepared literally one of the most dazzling fighters to walk to watch on the planet um and, and he he was masterful in this fight i mean i mean Hinato Sombral just didn't know what happened i will say he's got great tattoos I'll get <laughs> they didn't help him in this one unfortunately <laughs> I, and we're, we hope we can get uh Gegard on the show i would love to love to talk with him but just yeah i'm, I'm just kind of diving in as you're talking and looking at his career and just just an incredible Career cut reminds me of Alistair Overeem in that he's going to be one of those guys that won titles everywhere except the UFC, which will probably keep him from being mentioned among the all-time greats because that's exactly what Overeem did. I mean, very, very similar. Won belts in, uh, you know, whether they were Grand Prix belts or whatever. He won, you know, Pride and, and Strike Force and Dream and, you know, just K1, you know, all, all over the place. And so pretty, pretty similar careers. And, and unfortunately, I don't think either is ever going to get the the true – um, celebration that they should because they, they both deserve it. Oh, I mean, Alistair is amazing too, but the difference is Alistair can't take a punch. Gegard Musasi has a solid chin. Every time, every time Alistair Overing got hit, it was over. He was done. Musasi's been in some wars, and uh, his challenges have been with guys who could actually wrestle, guys who could take him down. Yeah. I know you're not going to agree with me that that Overeem has a glass jaw, but I don't think he has a glass jaw. But I, but he does have a tendency to, you know, he does eat punch as well. So I, I there's some validity to that. Uh, but both competitors will be back in in Strike Force. Musashi would be back a few months later, while Babalu would be back the following year in 2010. 
All right, here we are. Main event time. Chris Cyborg defeated Vigia Carano via TKO, coming by way of punches at 459 of the first round for the vacant Strike Force women's featherweight title. And what a massive fight this was going to be. Gina Carano was 7-0 coming in, which included wins over a lot of big-name female fighters from the 2000s, including Rosie Sexton, Elena Maxwell, Julie Kedzie, Tanya Evinger, Caitlin Young, and Kelly Cobald. Uh, the last four of her fights had been in Elite XC, where Carano had become a, a true megastar. Now she'd returned to the hexagon to stake her claim as the number number one female fighter in the world. Cyborg was 7-1, also had some big wins in Elite XC, including a win over Shayna Baszler, but her star was not quite as bright. Uh, as Carano's and part of that was was Cyborg being Brazilian and didn't not speaking English very well and uh, you know just other aesthetics factors that that you know Cyborg just wasn't gonna get this quite the attention that Gina was at that point. But the importance of this bout really could not be overstated. I mean, if the event didn't sell tickets or draw eyeballs, women's MMA as a true draw might have died on the spot, so to speak. And and then you know if the fight sold well, but the the action inside the cage didn't deliver, I mean, it could also be the death knell. So there was a lot of pressure on these ladies to put on, you know, an incredible fight. And and they really did. And uh, as we've discussed, I was there in person for this and the atmosphere was absolutely electric. I mean, it was incredible. The crowd was hyped up. Gina was the obvious fan favorite here. Uh, and you could, you know, the reaction from the crowd and all that, but cyborg's aggression was on full display right away. She walked Carano back against the cage and threw some really heavy leather. And the Brazilian went for a takedown with, Gina ending up on top, and the, I remember the crowd reacting strongly to that, but Cyborg grabbed a, a tight heel hook. Gina endured and got out, eliciting a big roar from the crowd. Cyborg went for another takedown, and once again, Carano ended up on top, this time in full mount. She rained down a few punches and landed a, a really good one, actually, but then she kind of inexplicably, she kind of let Cyborg push her off, and she stood and let Cyborg get up, which uh, Frank Shamrock called out as a, as a mistake on commentary, and I completely, completely agreed with that. But but really good action to start things off. Yeah, if I could just interrupt before you finish the, the recap of the round. I mean, I love the pre-fight promo on this. Um, Gina Carano, I, I don't think she ever thought she was going to win this fight. I mean, No, she, I, I agree. Yeah. You agree? I mean, she was so neutral. She was like... You know, putting over Cyborg as being really good in all areas of fighting. Um, you know, she said she herself was going to give her all. This was not a promo where I'm going to go out there and destroy this woman. It was it was so far from that. Which and, is not really her personality, but I, yeah. I think Corano lost this fight at, uh, at Shamrock versus Diaz when she watched Cyborg destroy uh, uh, Tommy, the Japanese fighter, when she watched her ragdoll her and like basically do everything but kill her, yeah. I think she lost the fight when she's sitting cage side watching that. I think I think it was over then. Yeah, there's something to be said, obviously, about intimidation and fear. Uh, not to riff too much here, but you know, you're afraid of Mike Tyson, you're going to get your ass kicked by Mike Tyson. If you're not afraid of Mike Tyson, you're going to knock Mike Tyson out. There's so much to be said about just like those mind games. Uh, you know, but it, it was it was just sort of interesting. Uh, Jimmy Lennon introduced her as the sensational Gina Carano. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the crowd popped huge. This was such a pro wrestling style atmosphere. They booed Cyborg. Gina Carano, once the camera got on her, massive 
cheers. Um, this, there's no more proof that you need in life that, you know, life is not fair. You know, like Gina Carano got a ton of attention because of things that she did not earn. It was just because of who she was. And uh, Cyborg over here is like this killer, right? And they're booing her because she doesn't look like Gina Carano, you know? And it's just just the way the, the, the world is. Um, it was incredible. I mean, Gina Carano was 7-0. and Think about that. Like 7-0. and That's It's not like a historic career where the crowd should be sort of cheering you on in this huge way. Um, and she wasn't like this knockout Ronda Rousey armbar specialist where you have this like hype of something's going to happen really quick. Um, I just do want, want to note that Figure Four Weekly at the time wrote this in, in terms of the marketing. It was huge because it was Beauty and the Beast. Huh. Chris Cyborg. I never get away with that today. Never get away with something like that today. I know. Chris Cyborg, the terrifying woman who struck fear into the heart of Gilbert Melendez as he spoke during the post-fight press conference versus Gina Carano, the woman who Maxim Magazine placed in the top 20 of most beautiful women in the whole entire world. It could have been hyped better, and it should have been on CBS instead of Showtime, but all those things aside, it was the perfect fight at the perfect time to headline this show. So, I mean, that kind of puts it in a little bit of, of, of context in terms of this was just a huge, huge moment for for women's MMA. Yeah, I well put. And yeah, it would have been great to see this on network TV on CBS. Absolutely. But, you know, this was great for Strike Force for sure. Uh, but getting back to the fight, as, as the round wore on, Cyborg was landing more and more. Gina was clearly weakening. Towards the end of the round, Carano rolled for some sort of mat maneuver, and Cyborg just started blasting her. And the round was almost up, but Gina just was not responding to the ref, who stopped the fight with one second left. And it was kind of a it was a weird it was a weird ending. It was it was not crystal clear cut. You know what what had happened there. Yeah, this was a strange fight, a strange round. I'm not big on conspiracy theories here uh but some of the choices that gina carano made in this fight were very bizarre um she was overmatched obviously uh cyborg went in there just like a beast and she's throwing punches and that's her mo and she's just gonna give it all uh but she got a little bit tired because she did all this and she wasn't able to knock her out in a minute Okay, um, I was baffled if there's that moment in the fight where Cyborg tries to take her down and actually swings her and Gina Carano ends up on top of her. And so this is the greatest gift that Gina Carano could have ever asked for because somehow, some way, she's on top of Cyborg. And that's a position that you don't really want to give up because you're not going to get it again. And she wasn't able to, to, to hold her up, you know, like she... Uh, uh, she backed off and, and Cyborg popped up and it was like, that's, that's a huge mistake. Like you just lost your chance. Uh, and then on the other end, um, Cyborg was able to apply a few submission holds in this fight. You know, it was a leg bar, an arm bar and, and Gina Carano got out and I was just like, wow. I mean, Cyborg was just, she was tired. She was a little sloppy in her execution and how she applied this, but Carano had lots of chances, even though she was outmatched. Um, but I think that that basically Cyborg got a little tired, so she was able to get let Carano back in. But but then eventually Gina Carano didn't have much to offer. She was not as fast as Cyborg. She did not have as much power. The moment that she had her down, she couldn't do anything with it. 
So we know how this is going to end. It's basically a lucky punch. And uh, it's just, you know, we would see that with Amanda Nunez later. But, I mean, if you're afraid, you're not going to land that punch. And and Cyborg just beat her down. There, there was a lot of unanswered punches. And it would have been great to see the referee let it go uh, because he doesn't know how many seconds are left, although he should be counting. I mean, they do get a warning. He should know, I'm going to let this go. I don't think the outcome would have been much different. I think Cyborg would have yeah. probably knocked her out pretty quickly to start the second round. Uh, but it is a fight. You never know. Carano, for as amazing as she is and, and what she brings to the sport, I mean, she's really no match for Cyborg on this night. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, you know, afterwards, Cyborg and Gina hugs and they hug and, and the Brazilians, Brazilian says, I like you in English, to which Gina laughs and said the same thing back and lots of hugs and, and tons of respect. And like I said, I remember being there, just an amazing fight, amazing atmosphere. Uh, but uh, but kind of a, a weird, you're going to fill us in a little bit more on this, Josh, but kind of a weird reaction after the fight from Carano. Yeah, so from Figure Four Weekly, um, after this outcome, what they wrote was Carano, after losing, didn't run through the crowd, but she did pull a Forrest Griffin, uh, <laughs> disappearing from public view. timing on us mentioning that earlier. Yeah. Exactly, right. Well, uh, she wasn't interviewed after the fight. She did not appear at the post-fight press conference. Nobody saw her backstage. Nobody from the California State Athletic Commission saw her. And even promoter Scott Coker never saw her again. Randy Couture, her trainer, said he talked to her in the locker room afterwards. And she wasn't hurt physically, but was emotionally distraught. So clearly, it's so much pressure on on her, right? She's carrying the whole sport on her shoulders. She knows she's overmatched. She's going in there against somebody who's better than her she knows it but all the pressures on her i mean that must be really hard to process it reminds me of rocky drago you know in 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 yeah. rocky ford kind of a similar situation except drago wins so <laughs> um but uh <laughs> uh but and drago might be prettier than cyborg at this point but anyways <laughs> uh, but cyborg the new champ she'll be back in strike force in early 2010 lots more big fights on the horizon from her so we'll be talking about her a lot more hope to get her on the show at some point as well however this would be it for gina carano as we record this in in march 2021 she is still only 38 years old she'll turn 39 in about a month uh which but, but which means that when she retired carano was only 27 years old i mean how crazy is that like that? That's just, that's insanity to me. And I mean, how much better could she have gotten as a fighter? How much bigger of a star? And if she'd become an even bigger star in, in MMA, uh, you know, maybe her movie career would be even bigger than it got to be. And, you know, now she's gone through all this political stuff and got fired from the Mandalorian and all that stuff. And so she'd become a a big star for sure. But how much bigger of a star might she be? I mean, might she be more of a Batista level or, you know, even like a rock level star, um, if she if she'd continued on in M- MMA for a while, now she did attempt to fight for Strikeforce a couple of years later. I just learned this as I was doing my research right before we we recorded this. Um, she was supposed to fight in 2011 and uh, was not medically cleared for that bout. It was uh, um, a later 2011 Strikeforce card, so I don't know the details around that. Uh, but of course, when we get to that card, we will discuss it more. And then we have discussed that she was going to fight for the UFC. There had been discussion about matching her up with Ronda Rousey, I think back in 2014. Yeah. 
yeah. if I remember correctly. And Dana White scuttled that by sending a uh, a very negative text to somebody about Gina, not realizing it actually went to Gina, and that was the end of that. So thanks, Dana, for killing that, because that would have been a fun fight to watch. Uh, but anyways, but that was it. And that's, that's the card. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event, uh, total dif- disclosed fighter payroll of 486,500 notable salaries to mention cyborg got 25,000, which included a 5,000 win bonus. Gina Carano got 125,000. So you can, you can see who they viewed as the, <laughs> the draw in this one. I don't understand how this works. There has to be more to this, but Gegar Musasi only got paid uh, officially, only got paid two thousand dollars, while former champ Babalu got seventy five thousand. Mm-hmm. I don't. That has to be, you know, he got paid by you know he was still under contract with Affliction or something. Something. Something had to be there. Or hey, yeah, we'll bring you in for two K, but we're really going to give you another eighty K or something. I don't know there had to be some. There has to be more to it than that because that's insanity. Uh, Melendez got 50,000 while Mitsuhiro Ishida took home 30,000 back to Japan with him. Uh, and then Fabricio Verdun got 50,000, including a $25,000 win bonus. And Mike Kyle got 14,000. Uh, but to recap, I mean, I really enjoyed the event, some big highlights uh, and the event overall delivered. Josh, w- what did you think? I thought it was a good show. I mean, it was highlighted by a strong main event. I mean, it was one of the most action packed one round main events that you're going to see. Um, and it had these compelling characters. I mean, Gina Carano at the time was hugely over. Chris Cyborg was this rising star, and everyone knew she was a badass. And real MMA fans who followed the sport knew that she was probably going to knock Gina Carano out. So it was there was a lot of drama there. It was really nice to see Gegard Mousasi. He had such an impressive win, and uh, he, I don't think he broke a sweat. <laughs> it was just like yeah. so cool. He was able to go in there and beat one of the top fighters at the time. Uh, Gilbert Melendez had a really super tactical, smart fight. And uh, so you're able to see two of the best fighters in the world, and not even just in Strikeforce, but just in all of MMA, have good outcomes. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I I love Strikeforce. Like, I'm a guy who I didn't cry when 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 Strikeforce was acquired by the UFC, but, like, I was very disappointed. Um, you know, and at this time, I thought Strikeforce, they were in a really good place. Uh, they were emerging, and I, and I think if, if, if they would have stayed on their own and did not sell to the UFC, I think they could have potentially made a run as a competitor because they were going, great, we're going to get to that down the road. But... You know, they had great production value. They had big-name fighters. They had this high-level broadcast crew. And, of course, they didn't have the UFC UFC brand. But, uh, you know, they were developing their own brand. And that's how that's how things start. I would be remiss. I want to mention, since we're talking about, you know, you mentioned uh, Gegard Masasi and his, his record and his career. The death of marvelous Marvin Hagler. We're talking combat sports. Middleweight champion for so long. I mean... This guy was an incredible journeyman, workman, boxer for so long. And I know that a lot of the MMA world was talking about his death as well. So I think, you know, he's definitely goes down there as, you know, one of those guys, you know, in boxing, you had to have 20, 25 fights before you got a title shot. And, uh, you know, Gegard was like a throwback to something like that. And then you got... You know, the death of, of Marvin Hagler, and that's big in the combat sports world. Yeah, absolutely. And I I, I 
I don't know a ton about Hagler, um, but I, you know, Hagler versus Duran and, you know, we fought Hearns and obviously fought Leonard and just, you know, incredible, um, one of the most durable chins in boxing history. And I'm reading a little bit about him now having been, he has only knocked down once. I mean, this guy had 67 total fights, pro fights, and he was only knocked down once during his entire professional career. And apparently that knockdown is, is actually disputed. So, uh, pretty, Did pretty, you ever watch the Sugar Ray Leonard Marvelous Marvin Hagler fight? I know I've he, seen clips of it. I don't know if I've seen the entire fight. But ha, ha, essentially, Hagler was robbed. And, That's, uh, I, and I know he was angry enough about the way that quit. it went that he quit, right? Yeah, and so. he, he left millions of dollars on the table. And, of course, everybody knows the Hearns-Hagler fight one of the greatest fights of all time. Yeah, that that uh, opening round is you know still seems <laughs> one of the absolute great. That I've seen that round a gazillion times, and... Uh, you know, by, we mentioned him never being knocked down. That means that in his, in his entire career with only the three losses, uh, they were all by decision, you know. So pretty, pretty, pretty amazing fighters. So rest in peace. And uh, I kind of wish he'd, he'd kept going and, you know, because who knows what, what could happen there. But, um, you know, obviously still an incredible career. He was 84. He was only 33, it looks like, when he when he retired. He was only 33 after that, uh, that, that Sure Ray Leonard fight. So, you know, kind of. He was so disgusted. He was so upset about it. Yeah. But he could add another five years, you know? So, um, but yeah, in 1990, Leonard finally offered to Hagler a rematch, which reportedly would have earned him $15 million, but he declined said that he had settled into his new life as an actor in Italy and was now uninterested in his past boxing life. So, uh, but he got over it and, you know, unfortunately didn't, it just never happened, but, but anyways, all right. Uh, so g- coming up ahead, I want to mention, we're working on our next few guest episodes. I'm not sure what, what we're going to have with that, so just stay tuned for news on that. Our next event episode, I am super excited to cover. I know you are too. Fedor versus Rogers. That's right, the Strike Force debut of the heavyweight GOAT, as we've already gone through on gone through on this card. But the card also features a battle between Jake Shields and Jason Mayhem Miller for the now vacant Strike Force middleweight title. Kung Lee had finally uh, decided to to relinquish the belt, as well as fights featuring Gegard Musassi and Fabricio Verdun. So quick turnarounds uh, for both of them. Familiar names, so it's going to be a fun one to cover. Of course, you can find us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at the Hexagon Pod. Uh, you can reach me at fillitinsidethehexagon.com. So make sure uh, that you check us out there. If you aren't already, follow us on all your, your podcasting platforms, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you follow or subscribe. We appreciate that. Uh, and again, if you want to get in touch, hit me up at fillitinsidethehexagon.com. would love to get your feedback. I did want to mention one last thing. We are going to be joining the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm extremely excited about this. I just had my first official meeting with them, and, and we're porting over our statistics. There's not going to be any change from your side, but you're probably going to see some new cover art and a new website and different things like that. Our current website is insidethehexagon.com, of course. All our episodes are there. Uh, but we're, we're going to be uh, kind of upgrading what we're doing, and so I'm excited about that. Hopefully we'll open some new avenues. You might hear me on some other shows. We might have some different guests on our show. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that, so stay tuned for more information on that. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy, and we will see you soon.
Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at Pit Pass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.